The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Uh, Father, I just uh, <clears throat> I thank you so much for the privilege that it is uh, to teach your word. I thank you for your sovereign hand throughout all of the history that we see in the scriptures. Um, God, I thank you so much for the midweek service. It's just so refreshing to me, God, to be able to get into the word, to worship Jesus. Um, I thank you so much for this group that's just so faithful to come out. And uh, we praise you for this Christmas season, Lord. I pray that tonight, um, Lord, that we would just be filled with joy and with hope as we observe and see what you've done for us, Jesus, on the cross. Um, I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, anoint me, God, give me prophetic words, not just words of my own. Uh, Jesus, we're not interested tonight in the things that we can uh, manufacture in our flesh. Uh, We're more interested tonight, Lord, in what um, you can produce um, through the word and through my mouth, uh, the, the, the things that matter, the things that have weight, Jesus. So um, I just pray for those, and I pray for those in Jesus' name. Amen. There's the light. Perfect. Cool. Okay, Mark chapter 14. I don't usually do this, but let's go ahead and read the text first. That way you guys kind of have a little bit of an idea where I'm going to go, and then we'll kind of go back and and work through it together. So Mark chapter 14, picking up in verse 53. Last week we looked at uh, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you guys remember that, um, where... Uh, Jesus was actually arrested by the guards um, of, the, of the, the temple and the Roman soldiers that were sent out um, to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. He's now been led um, to the house of Caiaphas, as we'll see, and now we're going to look at his trial. So verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple That is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. That will be the text for tonight. I can't really think of a lot of things more intense uh, or stressful um, than a trial, (laughs) especially when the trial is fixated or for you, when you're the one on trial. Um, To further that, I can't think of something more intense than a trial that would actually determine whether you were to be put to death or not, (laughs) whether you were actually going to live or whether you were going to be executed. Okay, this is an intense scene that we're going to look at tonight. It's also an extremely important scene. Now, I, I can say this with complete confidence, okay? It sounds like an extreme thing, but it's true. This, what we're going to look at tonight, is the greatest mistrial in all of history. It's the greatest mistrial in all of history. Past, present, and future. There will never be a trial that was this jacked up. There will never be a trial that was this illegal. There will never be a trial that was this wrong, just flat out dead wrong than this trial. As we're going to see, this isn't even really a trial. It's a murder. (laughs) It's essentially a murder. So, Spurgeon said about this text, he said, let all our hearts be awed as we follow the King of Kings in his pathways of shame. That's what we're going to do tonight as we look at Jesus taking another drink off of the cup of wrath, starting last week when he he was betrayed by his own friends um, and, uh, and, and they all fled 
now we see Jesus continuing to drink that cup of wrath um, as he goes to his, his crucifixion. Now, as I'm teaching through this and as we're kind of just breaking down verse by verse, I want you guys to think about something. So if you're taking notes and if you want to write this at the top of your paper and just consider this as, we're, as I'm teaching through this, um, the question is, who are you in this story? Okay, you got that? Who are you in this story? So as we're unpacking this and as we're looking at the different verses and the different characters, I want you to think about this. Who are you in this story? What group or what person best uh, exemplifies you? Okay? And here's the roadmap for tonight. Tonight we're going to look at three aspects of the story. It's kind of a bigger text. Um, If you guys are like me, when I read that entire thing, you probably missed most of it. So um, the three things we're going to look at, first of all, we're going to look at the trial. Okay, and, that, and that's, we're going to unpack a little bit of the, 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 the deceit and, uh, contained within this trial, um, some of the illegalities that were within this trial. And secondly, we're going to look at the answer that Jesus gives in his trial. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the reason. So if you're taking notes, the trial, the answer, and the reason. I'll give you a little bit of a, a framework um, by which we're going to look at this tonight. So firstly, the trial. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, I've been saying this over and over and over again, but when you see the elders and the chief priests and the scribes all coming together, that makes up a council. That council is called the Sanhedrin. Okay, does that sound familiar? The Sanhedrin. When those three come together, that is the high council of Israel. Now, you need to understand something about Israel, okay? Israel is a theocratic nation, okay? A theocratic nation. That means that they're a nation that their laws and all that they do is rooted in religion, okay? Not in secularism, but in religion. So everything that they do, their judicial system, all that stuff, is pulled out of and based off of the scriptures, okay? We don't really live in a theocratic nation, do we? Um, We base our laws off of a secular type of thinking, whatever makes sense, right? Um, This is a religion, or I'm sorry, this is a country that everything they do is based off of a religion, their belief in God and in the law that was given by Moses. Now, we see this sort of played out Um, Even geographically, when you go to Israel, one thing I noticed when I was there was that in the heart of every city is a synagogue. If you guys know what a synagogue is, it's sort of like the meeting place, the town hall of that town. Uh, It was where they would come together on Sabbath, oftentimes where they would come and read the scriptures, but it was also where they would do any kind of judicial proceedings. So if they needed to have a trial or a court, they would have a synagogue in the middle of every city. When we went to Capernaum, uh, which is a little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, it's where Jesus lived with Peter, Peter's little fishing house there. Uh, smack dab in the middle, it's the biggest building in there, you can't miss it, it's the synagogue, okay? The place of law, that's how they rolled in Israel, okay? It was all about the law. They had, it was just the center of everything that they did. And with each synagogue in each city, they would elect out of the people in that city, they would elect a high council, much like we do today, right? They elect a high council, and that high council is in charge of um, or over um, all of the legal proceedings for that town. Now, I say all that to say this. Jerusalem, okay, the capital of Israel, contains the Supreme Court. Okay, so you have synagogues with elders within those synagogues, but ultimately, the highest court in all of Israel is in Jerusalem, and it's the Supreme Court there. Okay, the highest of the high religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. This group was made up of 24 chief priests, 24 elders, and 24 scribes, and the chief priests. Okay, that was the Sanhedrin. So 71 guys, Supreme Court Justice in Israel. They were capable of carrying out anything except for political functions because Israel is what? Under Rome. Okay, Rome is controlling Israel. So everything religious and everything day-to-day, this is controlled by the Sanhedrin. Verse 54. So you get an idea here kind of who Jesus is in trial before. It would have been uh, a synagogue-type setting, even though it's not in a synagogue, with a big group of the highest of the high religious leaders all around uh, discussing, and Jesus would have been on trial with them. Verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So they're not where they're supposed to be, as we'll see. They're not uh, where a court would have actually taken place. They're actually at the house of a man named Caiaphas. Can you guys say that with me? Caiaphas. One more time. Caiaphas. Okay, I'm going to say that a lot tonight. They're at the house of a man named Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest. Okay, so he's the top dog religiously, on the top of the food chain, okay? Number one, numero uno, that's Caiaphas. They're at his house, and you can imagine, um, with the amount of money that was stolen and, 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 and like, 
criminally taken through the temple, that Caiaphas had a pretty awesome house. Probably marble pillars, probably a big courtyard. Um, you can assume that his house was pretty awesome, okay? Um, probably a Hollywood-style house. And they're inside, and Peter is outside warming his hands with the guards, right? Outside, they got probably a little fire barrel out there. And Peter's just trying to blend in. He hasn't denied Jesus yet. Um, now, I'm not going to focus too much on Peter. If you guys were here two weeks ago, I talked, about, uh, I talked about Peter in depth and about his denial, and we actually read verses 66, 66 through the end. So if you're interested in that, it's online. It's two weeks ago, but we're not going to focus on Peter tonight. We're going to focus more on the trial itself. Now, this is interesting. By the way, this first part is going to be all the background, all of the sort of schoolwork type stuff, so just bear with me through this. Um, but this is interesting, okay? In John's account of the trial of Jesus, it adds something that's not in any of the other Gospels. In John's account in chapter 18, you can look at it for yourself, um, it says that before they went to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, they actually went to another person's house first. And this person's house was named Annas, okay? Can I say Annas? <laughs> Make sure you're awake. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, okay? Now, that's important. So Annas is the father-in-law of the high priest, and before they actually go to the house of Caiaphas to have this illegal trial, they actually go to Annas' house first. Now, it's interesting because Annas was a high priest before Caiaphas, okay? He was a high priest before Caiaphas, so what does it matter? It matters because when you were a high priest, you actually were supposed to be the high priest for the rest of your life. So Annas is still alive. He's father-in-law to Caiaphas, and yet he's not high priest anymore. Well, what happened? Okay, it seems like from history, it actually seems like Annas, who, by the way, was in charge of the temple treasury, okay, so he's got his hands big time in the money of God's people. He's making money hand over fist through false religion, okay? Annas, who's over the treasury, it seems like he actually stepped out of that position, realizing that he could make more money being the behind-the-scenes mob boss pulling the strings than staying as the chief high priest. So what it seems like has actually happened is Annas steps out of the chief priest's position, gives it to Caiaphas, and the one actually behind the scenes, the top chain guy that no one would really know is Annas. He's the mind of this whole thing. He's pulling all the strings. So really, Caiaphas is sort of a puppet, okay? I just thought that was really interesting. That's why they went to Annas's house first, before they went to Caiaphas. They, they want to they wanna ask him, how are we going to get rid of this guy? How are we going to deal with this prophet or whatever he claims to be? Um, and Annas is the top dog. So just log that away wherever in your knowledge box in your mind, and we'll move on. I don't know a knowledge box. I don't know if that even exists. Um, so I want to talk a little bit to I want to talk about the, um, how, just how illegal this trial was. Okay, this is important. It might seem a little bit tedious, but I, I'm telling you, this is really cool. You have to understand how illegal this trial was. This was not the way it was supposed to happen. There were some specific rules that God had given for the way that trials were supposed to go down, for the judicial process in Israel. Okay, so I want to go through a few of those, and I just want to show you how illegal this trial was. So the first thing was, and you can find all this in Deuteronomy 16 if you guys want to go back and study that later. Um, Deuteronomy 16 gives all of the judicial laws and processes for how um, a court process was supposed to go. So the first thing is, is that all trials had to be public. Okay, now you'll notice too, a lot of these are a lot like our trials today, a lot like our court system today. These rules are here to protect us Okay, if you're ever the one sitting in the seat being judged, you want these rules in, in play to protect us, right? Well, God had instituted his rules too, and one of them was that it had to be in the daylight. Okay, it had to be in a public place. I'm sorry. Um, now, where was this trial done? In Caiaphas's house. Okay, it's not done where it's supposed to be. It's done in secrecy in a residential dwelling in the middle of the night. It's not in a public place where there can be accountability, where people can see uh, whether this trial is actually happening correctly. Now, secondly, Deuteronomy tells us that all trials had to provide both a prosecution and a defense. Okay? We do that in our day, right? If someone can't afford a defense, we give them one, right? The state pays for them to have a defense. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I might get some of this stuff wrong, but bear with me. Um, that's, that was the rules that God had given. Now, did Jesus have a defender? No. He was not given a defender. And in fact, there wasn't even a formal accuser. There wasn't even a formal prosecutor in play. So they're breaking that rule as well. 
Thirdly, Deuteronomy says that no accusation could be established without two or more witnesses. Okay? There has to be two or more witnesses that are actually bringing an offense against someone for them to actually go to trial. Now look at verse 55 of our text. This is interesting. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. So what that's saying is that the, the, the Sanhedrin is actually employing people to come up with false witness and false testimony. They're running around in the middle of the night, okay, because Judas woke them all up and said, hey, I got him, let's go get him. And they're running around trying to employ false witnesses because they have nothing on Jesus. They have nothing on him. So this is just like they're, they're scraping the barrel of deceit and lies. They're using the same money that they used probably to pay Judas, these silver pieces, they got plenty of money, to employ people to come up with false witness. But what does it say? It says that the witnesses didn't line up. <laughs> they didn't match up. Why? Because they're false. <laughs> they're false witnesses. So Deuteronomy says that you have to have at least two or more witnesses. And check this out. This is hardcore. You can imagine if this was the rule in America, we'd probably have a lot, of less, a lot less false trials. If you were a witness and you falsely testified, you would take on the penalty that was supposed to be given to the person on trial, okay? So if, if you're in a murder trial and the guy ends up being innocent and your witness was false, guess what? You get put to death. <laughs> Hardcore, right? But you can imagine how serious they would take the witness stand, okay? It's not something just to mess around with. God's making sure of this. So these are false witnesses. These are guys that are paid off to, to lie and to say that Jesus did something that he didn't. Fifthly, the first witnesses, Deuteronomy says, the first witnesses and accusers had also to be the first to throw the stone. Now, you guys may know this. Crucifixion is not Jewish, right? That's Roman. Okay, the Romans borrowed that from somebody. I don't remember who. Um, they thought that up. Okay, that's a Roman thing. Jews, the way that they would execute or, or bring out, carry out the death sentence was through stoning. Okay, seems morbid, but they would throw rocks until someone actually died. And the law was, according to Deuteronomy, that if you were the first witness or the first accuser, that you actually had to be the first one to throw the stone. Does that ring a bell? Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? That's what he's thinking about when he's saying that. So he's saying, whoever can honestly say that, 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 that this person has done wrong, then you throw the first stone. And why do they do that? They do that because can you imagine if you were the person to accuse someone of something wrong, and you had to be the first one to chuck a rock at their head, I, you better believe that you would, your testimony would be right. You better believe it would be true, okay? Because you're not gonna, probably not going to, in your conscience, be able to throw a rock at someone to kill them if what you're saying isn't true. So Jesus, I mean, God did all this in Deuteronomy for a reason. This is all a point. But, but what does the Sanhedrin do? They pass it off to the Romans. They don't have to throw a rock. They don't have to do anything. The Rom Romans take it over, right? The guards, they, they're the ones that actually put him on the cross, they get out of it scot-free. Deuteronomy says trials were never to be held before or during Sabbath or festival. Now, who can tell me what's going on right now during this? Anybody? Passover, thank you. Passover is going on right now. So again, it's illegal that they're doing this right now. They can't have trials on Sabbaths or, or, or holidays or any kind of festivals or anything like that. Sabbath is like Christmas. I mean, it's like the number one festival in Israel, and they're doing a trial in the middle of the night on Passover. It's completely illegal. This one's huge. Trials had to take place only during the daytime. Could not be done in the nighttime. Well, what do you think? Because they don't want people sentencing people to death, like we're looking at, um, in a way that's not legal. Doing it under cover of night where nobody even knows about it. Oops, that guy got executed. We never even had a chance to see whether it was right or wrong. They want it done in daylight. In fact, it couldn't even be in the evening, just in case the trial would carry on into nighttime. Had to be in daylight, had to be where everyone could see it, where they were accountable, and if someone's getting sentenced to death, it better be right, okay? And then lastly, but definitely not least, it had to be one, listen, it had to be one full day between when you actually uh, sentence them to where the sentence is carried out, okay? So if you are sentenced, you get 24 hours before it's carried out. Why? Well, in case there's other witnesses that come forward, in case there's other evidence that's presented, in case something has been done wrongly. Well, get this. Jesus is on trial right now, probably about 2 in the morning, 
and he's on the cross by 9 a.m., okay? We're talking like, I'm, I'm gonna mess up on the math, like six or seven hours there that Jesus, I mean, this is not 24-hour period. They want him dead. They're gonna do anything that they can to get him dead as quickly as they can. They're gonna do it at night. They're gonna do it illegally. They don't care how many laws they have to break to kill Jesus. They just want him dead. It's from the top down. It's from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin to the Pharisees to the scribes to the Sadducees. They want Jesus gone, okay? And they don't care what they have to do to kill him. They just want him dead. Now look at verse 57. So we kind of looked at the, the falseness of the trial. Now let's look at the falseness of their accusations. Verse 57 says, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with his hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Put your finger there. So Jesus, did he really say he was going to destroy the temple? No. He said, what, his temple, his body would be destroyed, but in three days it would rise again. He also prophesied that the temple would be destroyed, which it was in 70 AD, right? Um, so it was destroyed, he prophesied that, but he didn't say that he was going to destroy it. So it's false witness. Verse 59. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They're just not lining up. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? Why aren't you answering me, Jesus? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So the accusation is that Jesus is trying to destroy the temple. Okay, this is a strategic accusation. There's a reason why the Sanhedrin says, let's try to peg him for declaring that he's going to destroy the temple. The reason is, is that the Roman government isn't going to care if Jesus claims to be Messiah. They're not going to destroy him. They're not going to kill him if he's just simply someone claiming to be God. They're just going to think he's a nut and say, who cares? You guys do whatever you want. They will, however, take severe action on Jesus if they can explain to Pilate or condemn him on the, 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 the um, whatever, you know, whatever I'm trying to say and stuff. Um, if they can condemn him based off of a, a political issue. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. A political issue. So Pilate does not, Pilate does not want any kind of uprising, any kind of issues. I said this last week, but Pilate's not even from Jerusalem. Okay, Pilate's the Roman governor. He's in town from Caesarea just trying to keep things going during Passover, and he does not want a Jewish uprising. He doesn't want any kind of rioting or problems or anything. And so if the Sanhedrin can convince Pilate, who he'll go to next, that this guy causes a threat politically, Pilate will discard him. Pilate will take him out, okay? If they go to Pilate and say, yeah, this guy wants to be Jesus, Pilate's gonna say, I don't care. Deal with him yourself. I don't care, okay? So that's strategic. That's why they're accusing him of this specifically. Now notice how Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer their questions. This is strategic. This is important. Jesus does this on purpose, okay? He does it for a couple reasons. First of all, because their accusations are false, <laughs> He doesn't need to answer their accusations. They're false. He has no interest in saying some words that they're gonna twist into something to try to throw back at him. Jesus is smarter than that. And the second reason, you guys may know, Isaiah 53, verse seven. This is cool, okay, check this out. 500 years before this story, a prophet named Isaiah, God spoke and breathed words through Isaiah about Jesus the Messiah, who was, about, who was going to come hundreds of years down the road and he said this about Jesus, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Guys, that's 500 years, give or take, before this story. It was prophesied that Jesus, the Passover lamb, would come onto the scene and he would be quiet, silent before his shears, before the wolves, and he wouldn't respond in this fake and false trial. It's pretty awesome to think about. God knows what's going on the whole time. It's been planned out for a long time. So that's the background. That's the trial. Hopefully that gives you guys a little bit of a better understanding and idea of just how wicked and evil and deceitful this trial is. And now that we've gotten that done, I want to look at the second part to this, and that's the answer that Jesus gives. 
Okay, so up to this point, Jesus isn't giving any answers to any questions. He knows that these answers are pointless, they're worthless, they're false, that the witnesses are not lining up. And then in verse 61, the high priest asks him another question, and this one Jesus actually answers. Verse 61 of our text. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, the question posed there by Caiaphas is simply, are you Messiah? Okay, are you Christ? Now, you have to remember this. The Jewish traditional idea at this time of what Messiah looked like is entirely different than what Jesus actually came to be. You understand that? The the Jews were, were looking for Messiah to be this sort of Davidic, finite man who was strong and awesome and courageous and political who would come onto the scene and would unite all of Israel and and conquer Rome and, and set them back up as a superpower in the world. That was what they thought of Messiah as being. So what this chief priest is asking Jesus in our text is, are you gonna come and are you gonna be this Davidic Messiah that we've been looking for? Is that what you're claiming to be? Are you claiming to be Messiah, this weak Galilean peasant servant? Are you claiming to be this? Now, Jesus' response goes a whole lot farther than he asked for. He asks for this much, Jesus gives him this much. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll one-up that, I'll, I'll up that times, multiple times. I'll give you a bigger answer than you even asked for. Jesus says, I am. He says, I'm the son of man. And the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus' response. And his response really ticks him off, as you'll see. I mean, there's like explosive outburst after Jesus gives this response. They start to beat him, to strike him, to spit on him, to mock him. What is it that Jesus is saying here that's so irritating to them, so frustrating to them? So Jesus' response in verse 62 is, it's, it's three-dimensional, okay? The first dimension is that he says, I am. Okay, we talked about this last week. It's nothing new. He says, I am. That's the ego am I, I'm saying it wrong, ego am I, whatever it is. The, 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 the tetragrammaton, that's the, 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 the name that God gave for himself through the burning bush in Exodus, I am. Moses said, what is your name? Who are you? God said, I am that I am. That is Jesus Firstly, in his response, claiming deity. Secondly, he refers to himself as the son of man. So the second dimension is that he says he's the son of man. Now, the chief priests would have known, their mind would have gone directly to Daniel chapter 7. I guarantee it. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophets. And when Jesus says, um, not only does he say, I am, but he also says, I am the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, that's where their mind would go. I think we have a slide for that, Jesse, don't we? Daniel chapter 7, maybe not. Uh, It says this in Daniel. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, there's those words. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus is saying that he is the son of man, he is referring to the kind of power and deity and stewardship that was given by the Father in Daniel chapter 7. It's largely offensive. He's not just saying, yeah, I'm this human uh, Davidic type Messiah that's gonna come on and save the, war, you know, save the nation immediately. No, he's saying, I'm actually God. I've been given authority. That's what he comes in saying. And then thirdly, he goes even further. He says that I'm seated at the right hand in verse 62 of our text. Seated at the right hand of power. That means what? That means, listen, Jesus is the judge. He's being judged and he is the judge. Caiaphas, getting upset, asks him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I will one-up you. Not only am I the Messiah, not only am I God, but I am the judge of you. (laughs) And the place explodes. Everyone is so mad, so upset, so frustrated at his response. The funny thing is, is after all of these guys that they paid to come up with false testimony, you know who ended up really sealing the nail in the coffin? Jesus. None of the false testimony that they came up with would have done the trick, but Jesus' simple words and his proclamation of who he was put the nail in the coffin 
They erupted with fury. They said, what other testimony do we need to hear? Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his garments. Okay, that sounds stupid, but this is what they did. When they were so upset, when the Jews were so frustrated or so just emotionally upset, they would rip their garments and said, what further witness do we need? Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. It's unanimous. Kill him. Put him to death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him and say to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They're, they're covering his face and they're taking turns hitting him and smacking him. And then they're saying, mocking who he is and say, if you're a prophet, tell us which one's hitting you. <laughs> oh, if they only knew. Spurgeon, I read a Spurgeon sermon on it. He says, oh, the grace that Jesus did not open their mouth and obliterate them. I mean, he just sits there and takes it as they mock him and beat him. And it's, it's insane. Now, why did they react so violently to Jesus' response? What did he say other than that he's God? Obviously, that's frustrating. But what, what, what did he say that just, just invoked such wrath instantly with them? They reacted this way, now listen, this is huge, okay? They reacted this way because the real Jesus is offensive. He's offensive. If he's not offensive, you're not looking at the right Jesus, <laughs> okay? So what does that mean? If your Jesus does not cause you to squirm a little bit with what he actually said, if, if your Jesus does not really sort of draw a line in the sand culturally, and show you that there, there really is a certain way that things are to be done in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man, then that's not the real Jesus. What Jesus did is he, he, he openly and clearly declared who he really was, and it was so offensive that they said it's unanimous, put him to death. Now, the, this, is, this is weird to me. The, the most offensive part of Christianity is usually the Christians, Right? Polls, um, statistics, all kinds of things have shown um, that most of America says that the most offensive thing about Christianity is Christians. I don't think that's right. I think the most offensive, this might surprise you, I think the most offensive thing about Christianity should be Christ. (laughs) He should be the most offensive thing about Christianity. The reason it's gotten flipped is because we're oppressing moralism on people, which makes them hate Christians and think that we're judgmental, and we're giving them a fake and phony and false Jesus. We're not giving them the king of the world, the savior of all, the powerful, holy, and righteous God. We're giving them a, fo- a, a fake, false, weak Jesus. And then we're pushing moralism on him. That's essentially what we're doing. And that's why Christians are the most offensive thing. But Jesus should be the most offensive part of Christianity. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is so good. I think it's going to be up on the screen. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say, and you guys have probably heard people say this. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him. I don't accept his claim to be God. Have you guys ever heard someone say that? Maybe like most of our culture. <laughs> Nobody has a problem with Jesus being a historical figure. Maybe a, a prophet type person, uh, maybe like a Buddha type. Yeah, I just loved everybody and, and whatever. Jesus is my homeboy. Nobody has a problem with that. Listen to what he says. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either, he would either be a lunatic, I love this, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If that's your response to Jesus, if, if it's just, he's just a cool guy, a moral guy, he wasn't really God, he didn't really demand anything of anyone, he just sort of, uh, just, just sort of came in to be a chill dude that 
preached love and peace, you are not looking at the real Jesus. He's offensive, okay? It shouldn't be Christians that should be offensive. It should be Christ, the Christ that we preach. If the claims of Jesus are understood correctly, then you're forced to choose one of these things, C.S. Lewis says. He says either Jesus is crazy, okay? He's off his rocker and he's claiming to be God. There's plenty of those people out there, right? I've met a few that said they were Jesus, literally, or he's from Satan. He's completely lying. Or he really is who he says he is. But there's no in-between ground. Jesus didn't create room for that. He made it very clear. Either I'm God, I'm crazy, or I'm from Satan. Pick one. Now, which one do you think that the Sanhedrin picked? <laughs> he's evil. Kill him. Put him to death. We don't want anything to do with him. But my point is, guys, listen. My point is, is that if you look at Jesus for who he really is, you are forced to deal with it. You can't brush it off. You cannot brush it off. If, you're, if you really are looking at who Jesus claimed to be and what he really said, you have to deal with it. Now, what's the real reason that these guys are freaking out and ripping their garments? Can I tell you this? It's not because they're worried for God. Oh, no, he's claiming to be God. It's blasphemy. It's definitely not that. The reason they're ripping their garments and freaking out is because Jesus has encroached on their power and lust and pride and money, and they're faking, they're faking emotion so that they can put him to death. They're faking emotion so that they can put him to death. That's really the reality of it. They want him dead. They found their avenue. Jesus gave them the nail in the coffin, and now they can do it. Can I just tell you, nothing makes me matter than not getting my way. You guys, you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, Sam, you're such a loser. You guys are the same way, okay? You're driving along and someone, you know, you're stuck at that light forever and then the guy in front of you is not paying attention and he doesn't go and then last minute he gets to go and then you're stuck at the red light again and you get, I get so mad at that kind of stuff. I'm just like, because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Now, why are the Sadducees mad? It's not because they're offended for God. It's because Jesus is stepping on what they want They want power, they want prestige, they want money, and Jesus is encroaching on that. And they're gonna do anything to stop that. And this is the Jesus that offends people, the Jesus that comes into your life and says, guess what, Sam, it's not about you. You don't get a green light all the time, bud. Sometimes you gotta sit on a red light and deal with it, because life's not about you. Guess what, it's about him. It's not about me. And that's what the real Jesus does. He shows me a reality, and that reality is is that God has given me grace, but my life is not about me. I am not at the center of my universe. And guess what? We hate that. (laughs) We hate it so much that we'll crucify him (laughs) to remain the center of our own universe. We want to be what everything revolves around. We want to get our way. We want power. We want whatever it is. We will do anything to keep it. And and I'm sorry, but the, the Sanhedrin is modeling us. We are them. We will do anything to maintain the throne of our heart, will we not? So I ask the question again, who are you in this story? You're sure as heck not Jesus. (laughs) We are the religious leaders. We can't sit by and shake our heads at how evil these men were because the reality is is that we are just as bad. Now listen to this. This is so cool. One of my favorite preachers in the whole world, C.J. Mahaney, I have a quote from him, and I want you to read it with me. He says this. He says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And gross spiritual act. Were you there? He said, we must answer yes. Not as spectators only, but as guilty participants. Plotting, scheming, betraying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of the guilt like Pilate, but our attempts will be futile. Before we can begin, listen, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Can I read that again? Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. 
were you there when they crucified my Lord? And our answer has to be yes. We were there. We weren't spectators. We weren't Jesus. And you're looking at me and saying, what are you talking about? I didn't crucify Jesus. <laughs> oh, but you did. <laughs> oh, but I did. Listen, every one of us, before we were saved, had a trial in the wickedness of our heart. We put God on trial. We put Jesus on trial. I, at one point in my life, maybe multiple points in my life, have put Jesus on trial in the wickedness of my heart. And I did it just like they did. Listen, I did it in the dark. I don't want any truth to come in. I don't want any light to come in. I don't want to see Jesus for who he really is. I want to do it in the dark where no one knows and I'm going to crucify him so I don't have to obey him. We do it with false witnesses, don't we? Love what that guy's saying. Man, that tickles my ear. That gives me a Jesus I like. Love that guy's book. That really makes it a lot easier for me to condemn Jesus in my mind, in my heart. We've all put him on trial. We've all condemned him. We all share in the guilt of what Jesus went to the cross. If they wouldn't have done it, listen to me. If they wouldn't have done it, we would have done it. If the Sanhedrin wouldn't have crucified Jesus, we would have crucified Jesus. It's only by the grace of God that he has changed us from that state. What C.J. Mahaney is saying here is before you can understand the depths and the riches of God's grace, you have to stop standing here like this, shaking your head at people like the Sanhedrin, as evil as they were, and realize that, man, that's who I am. I am that wicked. I am that evil. And it's only by God's grace that I'm saved even out of such sin. It's amazing. Jesus has not saved a people that wanted him on the cross. He saved a people that wanted him in the tomb. He wanted, we wanted him in the tomb, but he didn't stay in the tomb, did he? And even though through high school and as a kid, I put Jesus on trial in my heart and said, I'm gonna put you to death. I don't want anything to do with you. And I've made myself the king of my life and I wanted him in the tomb. Guess what? He didn't stay there. <laughs> he broke out and he saved me. By his grace, not because of anything that I've done. I wanted him in the tomb, but he gave me grace. He became the king of my life by his grace. Thank you, Lord. And my last point, guys, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. So we looked at the trial. We looked at the answer of Jesus. And lastly, I just want to look at the reason. This is so cool. Why did Jesus have to go through this trial? <laughs> what was the purpose? What was the point? Why did he have to be subjected to this fallen an evil version of, of the law. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to end with this. Zechariah chapter 3. So if you're in Mark, just go backwards a little bit. It's a minor prophet, really close to the beginning of the New Testament. If you guys haven't um, looked at Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, get, get in there. It's really amazing. There's some amazing pictures of Christ in there as we're going to look at. We just spent half an hour, looking at one of the worst, not, no, not one of the worst, the worst, the most wicked and false trials in all of humanity. Now, let's look at a different kind of trial. Zechariah chapter three. Then, this is Zechariah getting caught up in a dream, seeing into the heavenly realm. He's seeing into God's kingdom here in Zechariah chapter three. Then he showed me Joshua. Now, Joshua was the high priest at that time, and he represents the priesthood. So Zechariah is standing there. He's, he's viewing this he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing there. And Joshua is actually in the accused position. He's on trial. The high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? Bible students, Jesus is the angel of the Lord. Jesus is there. Is Jesus the accuser? No. He's the defendant. Jesus is there. Joshua's there. Joshua's in the seat being accused. Jesus is there, the defendant, and who else is there? Satan. In verse, verse uh, 1, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So this is a real trial, okay? This isn't a mock trial. This isn't a false trial. This is a real trial. We have God the Father there, the judge, right? We have Jesus, the Son. We have Satan, the accuser, and we have Joshua, the one being accused. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel, listen, clothed with filthy garments. So Joshua, the one on trial, is filthy. He's covered with filthy garments. What does that mean? It means that he's sinful. It means that he's guilty. It means that what he's on trial for, he did it. Was he a trifle? The wickedness of the priesthood was horrible. And God is speaking judgment through the prophets constantly, time and time again. And in this scene, the priesthood is guilty. Joshua is guilty. He's wearing filthy garments. And Satan is there accusing him. Now, is what Satan accusing, is Satan accusing him of something that's not true? No, he's actually accusing him of what's true. Look at Joshua. He's filthy, standing before God, the pure and righteous and perfect judge. Verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Do you catch that? This is what's happening. Joshua is there being accused rightly. And then Jesus comes, and he actually says, take off those filthy garments and put on fresh ones that I will give him. This is a prophetic verse talking about what Jesus is going to do on the cross, that we are guilty before God in filthy garments. You guys, if you could see everything I've done on a screen, you would probably leave the room, every one of us. We are filthy, we are sinful so much, and we stand before God, the judge, and we are guilty. But Jesus comes in and says, I'm gonna give you fresh clothes. I'm going to give you purity. I'm going to give you righteousness. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Just a few more minutes. Just give me your attention. This doesn't make any sense. You have Jesus, the perfect one, that's sinless, in this false and wicked trial being wrongly accused. And then you have Joshua, or for our intents, us, before God, in a righteous trial, guilty, and he's let off the hook. Jesus goes to the cross. Joshua gets off. Jesus gets the wrong trial, the evil trial, the wicked trial, and Joshua gets, or we get, the righteous trial. Jesus gets treated like sin, like scum, becomes the sin of the world, and we get righteous garments? It doesn't make any sense. Guys, listen to me. That's the gospel. Has your skin gotten thick to that? I hope not. I mean, have we heard that so much that that doesn't pierce our hearts with God, you're so good. You're so gracious that I deserved the trial that you got. I deserved to be beaten and mocked and scorned with a false trial that that, that wasn't even accurate. And you deserved to be in heaven and given fresh garments and given praise and given adoration. But you gave it to me. And you took that. Why? Why would you do that? Because he's good. Because it's his grace. We get the trial that he deserves, and he gets the trial that we deserve. It's called imputation. He gives us everything that he deserved. He gives us the righteous life that he worked for, that he walked through. He imparts it to us, and he takes our wickedness. He takes our sinfulness. He takes our garments that are filthy and just gives us clean clothes that we can stand before our God now in purity and righteousness That even though, guys, even though we condemned him on the cross, even though, just like the Sanhedrin, we wanted him in the tomb, God's grace has overcome that, and now we stand before God in peace and harmony because of the raiments that Jesus purchased for us. We don't have to fear the judgment seat, do we? We don't have to fear that. Jesus went to trial for us. He went to trial for us so that we do not have to, that now we do not have to fear the wrath of God, but we can enjoy the grace and the love of God in eternity forever. Amen? Listen to Spurgeon's words as we end. Let Satan slander, but Christ plead. The accuser of the brethren is the prince of this world, but the prince of peace is ever our advocate before the eternal throne. We have an advocate in Jesus, a lawyer who stands at our side and fights and does not only plead our case, because let's be honest, our case isn't very good, but he gives us, imputes to us, imparts to us righteousness. May we never get tired of hearing that. If we understood what Jesus has done, 
we would be overcome. We would want to worship right now. Let's pray. Would you guys stand with me? Will you sing this with me? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other founts i know nothing but the blood of jesus nothing but the blood of jesus jesus i thank you for taking the trial we deserved Thank you for being beaten and mocked, taking the wrath of God, for being separated from the Trinity, for becoming sin, for becoming my garbage, so that I could take your life, your perfection. God, help us to understand and to be transformed and to be changed by the weight of the gospel. May we not be able to stand before you the same because we are moved emotionally and physically, spiritually in every way towards you out of thanksgiving and thankfulness for what you've done. God, may Heritage be a church that if anything understands the grace that has been given to us, flawed that we are, God, thank you for your grace. May we understand it deeper and more fully. So thank you, Jesus, for tonight. Thank you for this church. We love you. In your name, amen. All right, guys, we will see you Sunday morning. Just a reminder, it's an all-family service. Lots of Christmas music. Booyah.